Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Hello, I'm Bart Sheridan. Today we're digging deeper with Tim Cockrell again. We'll be referencing and working through Tim's recent sermon here at Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville. That's the opening presentation in our current study of Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And so, Tim, every time we open a new series, I like to give you an opportunity to give us an idea of why you chose to lead us through this particular study, this particular book, at this particular time. What gives? Yeah, it's a great question. One of my goals is I'm laying out a sermon calendar. It's actually one of the things I'm doing for this next year currently, is we want to provide a variety of biblical literature over the course of that calendar. So, you know, we did the book of Exodus, and then we were in the seven churches of Revelation that kind of give us individual snapshots of what Jesus would say, his sermons to those churches. And so as we come to the epistles, those are just so rich personally as well as theologically. And this one in particular, Paul just is so personal but also practical in what he says to this church. So as a pastor, as I'm you know, sharing what God is teaching me through this, I think there are just so many different ways that we can apply this individually but also corporately. And one of the themes that we talked about on Sunday was the idea of partnership. Mm-hmm. And as we sent off Marcus and Amy, as we seek to roll out this Multiply Grace initiative, which we discussed briefly on Sunday, I think it's easy to talk about partnership in the, the abstract. But when you have an illustration of that with Paul in this church, not just in a one-off type of a message, but as we unpack the richness that it included financial partnership, it included unity in the midst of differences of opinion, it included examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus that he would hold forward. I think just being able to walk through this as a church family is really going to shape and, and hopefully encourage us to do partnership well with the model that Paul has provided. And I'm assuming you've got a an outline that you're looking to follow. Can you share just in uh, kind of a high level what, uh, what your planned outline is for the coming weeks? Absolutely. So I'm not sure if I would say I have an outline per se, but there are a number of threads, if you will, that are woven together in this letter because it's such a personal letter. It's not like Paul is saying, you know, here's point one, I want you to understand point two. He'll he'll start talking to them and he'll say, oh, and also, by the way, you know, as you're in the midst of suffering or, you know, I, I want you to be unified in the same way that Jesus was. There are certain themes that come up over and over again. Joy is one of the predominant ones. We mentioned that on Sunday. 14 and times, I think you said. 15 times 15, total in the sorry. book. You got it. That's yeah, it's, it happens over and over and over again with the idea that this joy is an attitude that we choose. It is a confident assurance that God's character and his promises are trustworthy no matter what we're going through. There's also a theme of unity. Um, whether it's the unity in in Philippians 2, you know, that requires the humility that Jesus has modeled, or even Yodia and Syntyche that we see Mm -hmm. in Philippians 4 that are dealing with some difference of opinion, that that unity is by the work of the Holy Spirit that's modeled um, through the, the body of Christ. And then hope in the midst of suffering. Paul's own example is one of those themes, but then their example as well. They were enduring some amount of suffering for the sake of the gospel there in Philippi. And so when we see those threads woven together, all kind of with a a gospel focus, each week we're going to kind of be highlighting 
different aspects of that as we are encouraged through the message of the book. Good. Well, you mentioned the backstory. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talked uh, through Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 16 for a few minutes. And I, I know when I'm sitting down to read a book like Philippians, I you know, studied it for the past 30 some years, mm-hmm. but each time I like to go back to that Acts 15, 16, I, you know, any of the books, there's a backstory. Mm-hmm. Paul and Silas's journey there uh, to Philippi during Paul's second missionary journey, they're in, again, 15 and 16 of Acts. To dig into that a little more, it really is an account in Acts 16 of Paul's best laid plans being interrupted by God for reasons Paul really didn't understand, and maybe even after he had been there, didn't Mm -hmm. understand the full of it. Some might suggest that Paul's planning was flawed there in chapter 16 of Acts. Would that be a correct assumption? I don't know that I would say it was flawed as much as it was incomplete. You know, I'm reminded of the scripture where it says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways, nor your ways, my ways. The Lord just reminds us that we can lay our plans, but the Lord will direct our steps, as Proverbs teaches us. And I think that's important, especially for somebody like me who likes to be a planner, likes mm-hmm. to know kind of what the future holds, that we always have to hold that with an open hand that says, yes, God holds us accountable to steward our time well, to be anticipating what the future holds, to be strategic about our priorities. But ultimately, God has the freedom to direct our steps. And as you said, we don't always know why that is. There are times where he closes certain doors that we wished were open. Sometimes he opens doors we didn't really want to walk through in the first place. But that that's a part of the journey of faith. And I think it's interesting that Paul in Acts 15 is coming out of a, a ministry split, to be honest. You know, this falling out between he and Barnabas, that that was a a source of stability and strength. Barnabas was a son of encouragement. That's what the name means. And so suddenly now he has a new partner in ministry. And they're like, well, at least we know where we're going, right? And so they're they're on their way and God says, nope, that's not where you're going either. The best laid plans. In my life, there are many times where God uses that, I'll call it disequilibrium, that shaking of the snow globe, if you will, that kind of reminds me I'm not the one in control. And that he is, and that's that's a faith spiritual discipline as well. And and I'm thinking, even as you're saying that, you said, you know, not necessarily he was wrong. Is it possible that he wasn't wrong at all? He made plans just in his knowing what he knew, and God said, "Okay, I wanted you to go that, or I wanted you to get to this point, and making those plans got you to this point. But now I'm going to take you on a." quite literally a different loop Mm -hmm. up above where you had intended to go. And I'm going to take you into a region you had no idea, but you wouldn't have gotten there unless you had made the plans that you'd made. Yes, absolutely. I think that's the, the incompleteness of his plans. And I think that's why, you know, this next week we're going to be looking at Philippians one verses seven through 11. And as Paul prays for the Philippians, he says, I pray that you would be filled and abounding in love more and more in all knowledge and discernment, so that you might discern what is best. Man, that's something that we all need, isn't it? Like, as we face decisions so many times, it's not like there's a clear, yes, this is what you have to do. But there's several good options there. And so I think Paul himself had experienced God's direction 
to be able to discern. And so that's what he encourages and prays for the Philippians as well. And so perhaps just an encouragement to anybody who might be listening, keep planning, but be open to God's leading and don't think that you're out of sorts or should be out of sorts. Even Paul, the apostle, had plans interrupted. Absolutely. That's great. Well, Tim, also, as we're kind of getting started here in Philippians, I wondered if, if you could also maybe give us a brief introduc- introduction to some people that we are going to be encountering here throughout the book of Philippians, or the letters of the Philippians. Uh, give a kind of high points on, on who they are so we can be anticipating what we're going to be hearing. Of course. Yeah, I mean, we'll start, obviously, with Paul uh, as the author of the letter, Um, an apostle by virtue of his calling on the Damascus Road, who had just this personal intimate relationship with them. They knew the story of Paul and Silas in jail. Many of them had been led to faith personally by Paul. And the evidence is that they had a, a close relationship with Paul so much that they would send a messenger to him when he was in prison in Rome, 800 miles, to be able to bless him in those ways. And so Paul... And and if I might even interrupt, but that was even in question here, evidently, in the Church of Philippi. Paul takes some time to explain and kind of defend his apostleship here in Philippians. Well, I think he doesn't spend as much time defending his apostleship as much as he does modeling the the humility of right. being a servant. And so okay. there is definitely an authority element to it. But as I look at kind of his emphasis... Even in Philippians 2, talking about the, you know, let this exam- this attitude be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Right. The, the humility is really what comes to the fore. Good. And so as he's writing, he's, he's urging them and encouraging them. And then he's going to send Timothy. So he introduces the book, Paul and Timothy. Timothy was a young man who actually joined Paul just before they arrived in Philippi. So he was a brand new ministry intern, if you will, when they <laughs> arrived in Philippi and had a lot that he learned along the way. And so Timothy was a faithful companion of Paul, even when he was imprisoned, to where when Paul was limited, Timothy was not. And Paul could send Timothy, and that's what he does. He shares with the Philippians that that's what he was planning to do. And so this is a great example of partnership in ministry, of of the authority that he gives. Another key player is Epaphroditus, um, kind of a mouthful there. But this was the, the member of the church in Philippi who traveled to Rome in order to encourage Paul and became very sick in the process. And so we see it at the end of chapter 2, I believe it is, that Paul holds up Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples of what it is to serve the Lord faithfully as a partner in ministry. And I think that's a, a healthy reminder for us that we don't want to ever elevate someone unnecessarily, but that there is a place to say this is an example of what we all ought to be doing. And so even as we brought Marcus and Amy up on stage yesterday, we weren't bringing them up on or on Sunday. It wasn't because you know they're they're super saints, but because they are faithfully carrying out the commission that every one of us ought to be doing. And we long to see more and more of those types of formal and informal opportunities for people to serve. A couple other more minor characters, Yodia and Syntyche, I've already mentioned in Philippians 4, partners in the gospel, apparently early converts to Christianity there when Paul was there, but they were having a tough time getting along, differences of opinion or relational rift that Paul urges them to be reconciled. And then Clement is one other that is mentioned there. We don't know much about him, but we know that he was also faithfully serving there in the church. 
But when it comes right down to it, a real church, mm-hmm. real personalities, real relationships, real struggles in ministry, uh, it's a good book for any church or any individual to look at and really learn from. Yes. We call this one of the four prison epistles. It's written during Paul's imprisonment in Rome, we believe, probably the early 60s, mm-hmm. uh, 62 or, or thereabout. But interesting to me, if I were writing this book and I'm in prison, like Paul was, for what he was doing for his preaching of the gospel and the uproar that comes from the preaching of the gospel, mm-hmm. I'm probably going to focus a little bit more on that than Paul does. It's interesting to me that there are only a couple of what I'll call passing references to that imprisonment uh, midway through uh, and late in the first chapter. That relative silence about his own circumstances in itself is pretty amazing to me. It is. I mean, even from the very beginning of the book, you know, he says, I am just so filled with thankfulness because Woo-hoo! of you. I'm glad I'm where you I know? am. And then we find out where he really is. Right. You you would never guess from just looking at, the, especially the introduction, but really most of the book, that those were his circumstances. We only know by virtue of, of some, like you said, some passing references and some historical context. But I think, one, that shows us Paul's focus wasn't on his circumstances. He's modeling what it is to be filled with joy. And I think we have to be careful here that we're not saying being filled with joy just means that we're, you know, a Pollyanna, everything is just as, as good as it could ever be. I'm just so happy that I'm here in prison. But that it is a, a determined choice to focus on God's goodness and his faithfulness rather than this difficulty. And so rather than being kind of filled with self-pity, Paul is recognizing, yes, there is suffering, but that's a part of the normal Christian life. And so we want to just really think through how do we we live out these priorities in the midst of our suffering. I was listening to some good teaching, what I consider to be good teaching here this past week uh, on a podcast, and uh, the gentleman was talking about God's sovereignty. And mm. he was reminding the listener that uh, you know, m- almost everybody in the church says, yes, God is sovereign. But when we apply that to our circumstances and we realize that, you know what, Uh, my waking up this morning an hour late because I didn't sleep well last night and somehow I had turned the do not disturb button on my (laughs) phone, Um, God, I've got to think God knew that. Mm -hmm. and Maybe I needed that. And that messed up my whole day, to be honest Mm -hmm. with you. But Paul is recognizing here, it seems, no. God knows this. And mm-hmm. by the way, I think God has me here for a reason. Wow. Yes. Instead of just saying, doggone it, I'm off my plan and I'll never get back and this is all, woe is me. Paul is all about joy, just as you say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard it said a while ago, and I don't remember uh, who said it, but that our stated belief plus our actual practice equals our actual belief. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just really helpful for us to remember because, yes, we can say God is good or we can say, yes, we believe God is sovereign. But if that if we live a life of prayerlessness, if we are filled with anxiousness, if we are uh, constantly seeking to be self-sufficient and independent rather than trusting in the Lord, well, that's telling us what we really believe, right? I mean, we can can give lip service to it. And so Paul's living it out and he's calling them to do the same thing. 
So, Tim, uh, the church was obviously a relatively young church, as I guess we've got to say all churches were at that point in history in the early 60s, mm-hmm. but uh, not even having a synagogue when per- Paul first visited there in Acts chapter 16. His practice was to go to the synagogue, as you mentioned in your sermon, but they didn't have that, so they went to the river where prayer was uh, was likely to be made, mm-hmm. it says. They started with practically nothing, and, mm. and in terms of people, they had a woman from Thyatira, a businesswoman. Mm-hmm. They had a jailer. They had a demon, formerly demon-possessed girl. That's what we know for sure. Mm. You shared that you have a suspicion that that church may have been Paul's favorite church plant. Any other specifics? I mean, you mentioned a few things. They had certainly attended to his financial need, mm-hmm. and we see that. That's actually one of the reasons Epaphroditus was going Correct. there. I think maybe Epaphroditus was going there also to share some things. Hey, we need some help, Paul. And we, mm-hmm. <laughs> but any other specific as to why you think that? Yeah, I mean, it's this interesting would be comment. A, a little bit speculative. You know, some of it, we're just seeing the tone that's there and, and kind of trying to read that. But I can say as a pastor, I can think back on different congregations and different people in life events I was going through. You know, I think about when, when Katie and I found out that Judah had Down syndrome and, and all the questions that we had that were there or when we were, were newly married and we had young kids and we were at Dayton Avenue over in Xenia. The people that invested in us, the ways that they walked through life with us and the relationships that were forged around that became so formative. And so I, this is speculative, but... You know, Paul was coming out of a, a difficult ministry rift. There, there's discouragement and frustration that comes when believers that ought, ought to be getting along together aren't. And Questions? Am I really doing the right thing? Did yeah. I do the right thing? Where am I heading now? Yep. The danger of kind of bitterness or, or uh, kind of becoming jaded a little bit. It's probably nice that you've never had to go through yeah, that Yeah, you know, thing. if only. Um, you know, the, the difficulty of, of being redirected and wondering, God, what are you doing? And then seeing God so clearly move that it's almost like maybe a strange analogy, but like a surfer catching a wave that, that you realize, man, God is doing this and I'm just along for the ride. That as he sees God open the heart of, of Lydia and as he sees God send an earthquake and that they don't run away and because they're faithful to stay, the jailer and his whole family come to Christ. And there's a work of power in this uh, young slave girl who's uh, set free from demon possession. And you begin to realize God's doing a new and exciting thing that I think that has a galvanizing effect than those relationships. So I don't know all of the details, but that would be my suspicion that there was a relationship that was established there, but that it wasn't just one directional. They were an encouragement to Paul as much as he was an encouragement to them. And even Epaphroditus going there is a good example of that, that they continued praying for him and they were partnering. And we know from some of Paul's other prison epistles, toward the end of his life, he was all alone. Like some of the people who had been faithful partners had kind of deserted him. And so I think that deepened his appreciation for their partnership. And Paul, uh, Paul obviously had a deep and abiding faith in Jesus Christ. He trusted God. Uh, one of the things, and and we didn't, he didn't spend as much time on it as we might have in another in another uh, uh, time and another focus. But uh, verse six, mm-hmm. I don't want to go by this without just mentioning it. Verse six is a is a passage that is important 
to churches like ours. Uh, it, it, I believe it should be important to all churches, mm-hmm. but it really is a, we take it as a promise mm-hmm. uh, and a declaration about God's, not only God's uh, sovereignty, but his continuing work. Can you talk a little bit about that particular passage in verse six? Absolutely. So when we think about salvation, one of the things that often is discussed and debated is you know, how God's sovereignty and human responsibility fit together. From my perspective, as I read the scriptures, it is clear that our salvation depends on God's sovereign initiative. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins. Or Ephesians chapter 2 would teach us. And so most people, I think, in our church would recognize that necessity of God's sovereign initiative. But I think the danger, and this is a human danger, is that we say, yes, I need God's grace to save me, but then after that, it's up to me. You know, this is the the Galatian heresy that, you know, you foolish Galatians, did you really believe that you would start your walk of faith by faith and then do it, the rest of it by human effort? And that gets into the Philippian church too here. Exactly. Well, again, I think it's just a human tendency that we can all struggle with that, yes, now I'm a son, but I've got to prove myself. I've got to earn the favor of of my heavenly father. And so this verse is just a great reminder of Paul's confidence was in God. The God who began their salvation was the same God who was actively growing them in maturity who is going to help them resolve their differences, who is going to um, give them perseverance in the midst of suffering, give them humility to, to live with one another in an understanding way. And that ultimately God was going to be the one to complete it. And if we really believe that and own that, it frees us from anxiety, something Paul's going to talk about in Philippians chapter four. It deepens our appreciation for the fact that God's working in that person's life just in the same way as he's working in my life and that we're all in process. And it gives us just, I think, a measured faith that says God is doing something here that is bigger than me, but that includes my own individual growth and spiritual discipline. It reminds me of a story that that was central to my life. Uh, High school quarterback threw four interceptions in the biggest game of the year. And I remember the coach coming up to me afterwards and saying, and I was in tears, Mm -hmm. and he said, you're still my quarterback. Mm -hmm. That meant a lot. Mm -hmm. And really, God is saying the same thing to Paul, to the Philippians. Hey, I know how big of a screw-up you are, (laughs) but you're still mine, and there's nothing going to take you out of my hand. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that there's seems such to be what he's saying here. Yeah. Well, and I think we can, the human fear is that our walk with the Lord depends on our grip on him. That if we have a hard day or if we're struggling with sin or we're dealing with doubt, that somehow God's just going to eventually get fed up with us and shake his head and want to walk away. And sometimes the reason for that, we feel that, is because we've experienced that in human relationships, whether in family or, or friendships. But when we remember that our hope is not in how well we grip God, but in how strongly he grips us, that's a game changer in terms of how we live the Christian life. It's not about guilt and fear and shame. It's about living out our identity in Christ. As we prepare for next week, uh, you gave us a little bit of a taste. Anything else you want to say or any other perhaps companion passages or or, uh, passages in Scripture that you would direct us to to prepare? Well, we get the opportunity to 
to get a sneak peek into Paul's prayer journal in this next week in uh, Philippians 1 verses 7 through 11. And one of the things I really want to focus on is what Paul's priorities were in prayer. Because many times when we think about prayer, we're thinking about praying for specific practical needs. And there's definitely a place for that. God invites us to do that. But Paul's priority, in spite of suffering and other things that he and others were experiencing, was, I want to see spiritual depth. I want you to know the the wonder of the riches that you have in Christ. I want you to grow in fruitfulness and in, in holiness as you walk with him. And so I would encourage us to read all the different prayers that we see of Paul in, in Ephesians and Philippians, as well as in uh, Thessalonians and in Colossians, just to be reminded that whenever we see a prayer of Paul, there are certain priorities that come to the fore, and that ought to characterize our prayers for our spouse, for our children, for our church, for our ABF, our small group members, and, and that that guides us in really biblical priorities. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, Tim, thanks so much for jumping in here and being ready to discuss with us. Looking forward to next week. We've been digging deeper today with Tim Cockrell, and you can access Grace Sermons and podcast episodes on demand by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking the Media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. And plan to join us next time. We'll be continuing our discussion of God's Word. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.